0: Awesome. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. I, I put them to work today. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they did wonderful. They always do. Um, round of applause for them. <laughs> Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Thank you, Mike, too, for for leading today. <laughs> All righty. Um, I'm not going to have you open your Bibles today. Today is going to be um, a similar sermon that we've heard about Easter. Uh, and I, I kind of made a promise in a way to everyone that when I would never stop studying because it's necessary for us to learn new information about everything. Um, and so I try to revamp this sermon in order for us to have all the necessary information uh, given to us about what it means for the resurrection and as well as the historical, um, historical reliability of the Gospels and why we should believe this. Um, so if a lot of this is similar, there's a reason for that. I want you to remember this stuff. But then also, I want you to catch to see what is dissimilar. <laughs> and if you can, tell me after. If you can't, then, well, shame. This can... <laughs> How dare you? Anyway, Easter Sunday. It is one of the most important holidays within the Christian religion. It is the day when we take time to remember the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It is on this day that we recognize the very real truth which concerns Jesus And that is that there is no real middle ground with him. For no matter if one is a believer or if one is an unbeliever, none can say that anything concerning this Jesus is of minor importance. Either he lived, he died, and rose again, or he did not. If he did, then the world is changed. If not, then the purpose we meet every week, the grand history of the church and the very blood of the martyrs, has been made void, worthless, and we who believe are most to be pitied, pitied, as Paul said. So this leads to the question, is what has been taught and written about Jesus true? Is the Bible historically reliable? How can we know whether it is true or not? These questions are important. For if we can answer these questions, we will be able to silence doubt within ourselves as well as the doubt others have about Jesus. Thus, we will look at these things and consider what the evidence says. And now we're going to do this in three ways. The first is we'll deal with the historical evidence. Then we'll deal with some skepticism. And finally, we'll discuss personal experiences. When it comes to the life and death of Jesus, there is really no debate Scholars, whether Christian or not, recognize Jesus was a Jew who lived in the first century in Israel. Few doubt the claim that he actually existed, that he was a teacher, he had disciples. Likewise, few doubt that he was nailed to a cross and was even considered a martyr. As such, when we consider the gospel narratives, the books of the Bible which deal with the life of Jesus, we find the majority of scholars actually agree with Christians in understanding they are historically reliable. Oftentimes, non-scholars and skeptics will claim, for example, that the Gospels in the New Testament were written hundreds, if not uh, hundreds of years after the events took place. Yet when we look at the Gospels, we find these assumptions are false. Indeed, when we look at the Gospels, we can see signs that the authors were not writing a great distance in time or space after the events took place, but were either eyewitnesses themselves or talked to eyewitnesses. If this is true, then we should be able to find the historical evidence in the Gospels. But what evidence do we have specifically? Well, we have the telltale signs of their reliability. Consider the names in the Gospels. If, let's say, the Gospels were written in Egypt, then what we would expect to find are Jewish-Egyptian names. Indeed, the common names for Egyptian Jews were quite different from those in Judea and Galilee during the time that Jesus lived. We see this as the top five Jewish men's names in Egypt were Eliezer, Sabbatius, Joseph, Dossathus, and Pappas. Whereas in Judea and Galilee, it was Simon, Joseph, Eliezer, Judah, and Yohanan, John. Now, what do we find in the Gospels? Well, we find the common names of people match what we find in Judea at the time. The text even gives us information on which names were more common. Consider the 12 disciples as described in Matthew. We read, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And that's Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Now, what do we notice about these names? Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Zebedee, James the son of of Alphaeus. We notice that the common names are given extra details to specify who each one was. We see this also with Simon the leper and Simon the Cyrene. We saw it today when Mike was reading from Luke. Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Mary the mother of Jesus. Now, it's not only with the names... But consider this map. We notice there are a number of these small towns all throughout that are recognized and specifically named in the Gospels. Bethpage, um, Bethsaida, Bethany, Capernaum. Not only these small towns, but also we get interesting details on their location, how far it was to walk from each place to another. Thus the question is, How would the writers know about these small, obscure towns? How did they get them right? Well, they would need to know where the towns were in order to accurately give truthful information. Now, what we noticed thus far is that the names and the places are exactly what we'd expect to find from someone who knew the area. A third point is the flora. Now, you might be thinking, the flora? And I say, yes, the flora. For example, we know about Zacchaeus, right? Good Z name. What do we know about him? Wee little man. He climbed up a tree. That's right. We also know another thing too. It happened where? Jericho. Are there sycamore trees in Jericho? The answer is yes. The same is true with fig trees. They are prominent in Judea. And where particular grass is even, when Jesus fed the 5,000, they are told to sit on the grass, and the area where Jesus was at the time would have been grassy during that time of year. It's very specific in its flora, and it gets it right. Now, the fourth point is something which is more recent, and that has to do with the crucifixion. Now, do you all remember that how around the time when Jesus died, something happened in the sky? What happened? Darkness. Darkness, a solar eclipse, perhaps. Now, do you know something interesting that's been found? Well, we can look back and see when Friday was the beginning of Passover, and we come to two years when this happened during the time, 30 AD and 33 AD. And wouldn't you know it, in 33 AD, we found that there was a solar eclipse that happened right in the time frame, as in it was within the right hour And that it would be seen at that exact location in Judea. So I've given you this information for one purpose. The Gospels are often stated as being biased or unreliable. The truth is, however, we find them to be very reliable historically as we see these little bits of added information that would normally not be seen if they were not reliable. How can we be sure of this? Well, let's consider some that are not historically reliable. How many of you have heard of the Apocryphal Gospels? How many of you have read them? (laughs) They're fun, aren't they? Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of James. Do you know what's very interesting about these texts? They lack any of the information we would expect from eyewitness sources. Indeed, when it comes to, let's say, place names, do do we know what we find? There's usually just one main place name, and that is... Jerusalem, the only other place is Nazareth, but the text claims that that's Jesus' middle name, not even a name or of a place. Now, we would expect this of people who write about things they don't actually know about. For example, if I were to write a book about France, what is the likeliest city that I would write about? Paris, because that's the most well-known city. If, let's say, someone were to write about Pennsylvania, they'd write about Philadelphia. They probably wouldn't write about Westfield. So sad. But it's not only locations they lack, but consider some of the things that they say about Jesus. They rarely use the name Jesus. Instead, it will be Savior or Christ. That's important because it implies a further written date than what we find in the Gospels because the farther you get from something, the more likely you are to forget names or not worry about those little inconsistencies. Likewise, such later written materials would be satisfied with this because everyone would know who Christ or Savior is. You wouldn't need to say Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth when everyone would know who you're talking about. Finally, some will say, yes, of course the Christians would write such things. It's their works after all. But what evidence outside of the scriptures do we have of these events? This is a fair question in some ways. Though we should also acknowledge that all because Christians wrote the accounts, it doesn't make them false. That's called the genetic fallacy. Indeed, we have seen how very reliable they've been thus far in their writing because they wanted to get the facts straight as to what actually happened. Still, most don't realize that we actually do have evidence of much of what happened outside of Christian sources. Scholars note Jewish historian Josephus, Thallus, Tacitus, Marbar, Serapion and Phlegon, all speak of Jesus in some way or events that happened around the time of his death. Um, Each gives us information. And when combined, we learn the following. From just these sources, Jesus lived in Judea. He was a virtuous man. He had wondrous powers, could predict the future, was wise king of the Jews, accused by Jewish leaders, crucified by Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. darkness and an earthquake, reportedly rose after his death, believed to be the Messiah, called the Christ, followers called Christians, and a superstition spread about him. As we can see, there were skeptics involved, but in the end, they report the same things that we find within the Gospels. So when we consider all these things, and there is far more I haven't gotten into next, and that's for next year, <laughs> we find the Gospels to be historically reliable, scholars whether believers or not all recognize this to be the case now that leads to the next question if scholars across the board agree that the historical reliability of the gospels then why aren't they all believers well the answer lies in the crucifixion and the resurrection for the unbeliever the crucifixion is the end of the story instead of there being anything more christ simply died what then of the resurrection you ask Well, they will say some interesting things. Some say the disciples made up the whole resurrection story. But let's consider that. For those who believe that the disciples made up the story, it makes little sense. First, consider what we find in the scriptures concerning the resurrection account. Who was it that first went to the tomb? Was it any of the 12 disciples mentioned above? No. It was the women. Why weren't the disciples there? Because they were not expecting Christ to rise from the dead. They thought it was over. They all fled as soon as Jesus was arrested. And Peter, one of the few who didn't, even betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. If the disciples made up the story of the resurrection, then why would they do it this way? Why not make themselves look better instead of looking completely lost and ignorant and, to be honest, kind of stupid? Further, why add to the story that women were the first to encounter the empty tomb? Few seem to realize that during the first century, women were rarely allowed to even give testimony when it came to court. Thus, the testimony of the women, the fact that they were the first to encounter the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus, that's significant. This leads to the second important point, which is that no first century Jew had even considered the resurrection of a single person before. Instead, the resurrection was understood to be an eschatological, an end times event for everyone. Within Jewish literature, there is no event which occurs like the rising of Christ from the dead. Some will say, what about Enoch or Elijah? The problem with these two is that they were not resurrections. They were called translations, where one went to heaven without dying. Likewise, one would ask about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. Yet this is not a resurrection Lazarus was a resuscitation where one was brought back to life but would die again. The resurrection during the time of Christ meant one thing, that one died and was raised into immortality, never to die again, because that is the definition of resurrection. This is the language used by the New Testament writers themselves. They do not see this as a translation. They do not see this as a resuscitation, but as the resurrection. Christ to rise from the dead into immortality would go against everything the disciples had understood. Does this make sense when we read the text? One would say it does. Especially since, again, the disciples are not even seen to comprehend the resurrection of Christ. They were not expecting it. They were just as surprised and shocked as anyone else. While it is easy for us to use the term 2,000 years after the fact... For the Jew in the first century, it would have been a completely new and foreign concept. Yet here, they are understanding it in this way. So the women, the term resurrection are two significant points which goes against why it's unlikely the disciples would have or could have even simply made up a story. Still, some will say that this assumes Jesus did rise from the dead. So let's assume Jesus was not raised from the dead. What's the major problem with this? The problem is the tomb was empty. Even if the disciples were to make up a story that Jesus rose from the dead, their skeptics could go to the burial place, see the body, and move on. As it is, they can't do this because there was no body within the tomb. Some will point to Matthew twenty-eight eleven through 15 as an argument against the empty tomb. Consider what the text says. Gotcha, the skeptic will say. Clearly, the body was stolen by the disciples in the night. But here's something to consider with this. First, again, the disciples would never have thought about this kind of understanding of the resurrection on their own. Second, why would Christians include this information in their own history? It seems self-defeating if it were true. This then leads to the third point, which is, That the argument by the Sanhedrin is one that you would expect from those who are, in fact, skeptical themselves. The final point is this. The tomb was empty. No skeptical Jewish leader could go to the tomb and say the disciples are liars about Christ rising because the body was still there. Their own argument verifies that the body was gone and the tomb was empty. Also consider those who had seen Jesus after the resurrection took place. Some some skeptics will say, ah, but it was mass hysteria. The problem is, again, none of those Jewish believers would have had mass hysteria because they would never have even thought of a resurrected Savior. For them, the Christ was to be a warrior king who defeated all their enemies. Christ dying on the cross was nothing they were expecting. Likewise, there has never been an instance when everyone experienced the exact same thing in mass hysteria, the same exact words, the same exact experience. In cases of mass hysteria, one would say, I saw him wearing white, and he said one plus two equals three. Meanwhile, the person next to them would say, I saw him wearing red, and he was saying A, B, C, D. Yet in the Gospels, all of the disciples experienced the same exact thing, The same words, the same Jesus. Another point is this. Consider the way Jesus is presented after the resurrection. Think about it. If one wanted to make up a story about Jesus, you would make him the great example. He would be taller than the tomb, shining, dazzling, brilliant. Interestingly, this is the exact way the apocryphal gospels present Jesus at the resurrection. Yet he isn't like that at all in the biblical gospels. He is even mistaken for the gardener. Indeed, the angels appear more dazzling than the risen Lord. If they were making it up, why write about his appearance in such a mundane, everyday, normal kind of way? Now further, consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9. For I deliver to you... For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, there's a lot of information in these few verses. First, this is not originally written by Paul. The language is different from the rest of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it flows well with Aramaic, which implies it was first in Aramaic and then translated into Greek, which is the language the rest of the letter is written in. This is especially clear since we notice Peter is not called Peter, but Cephas. All scholars, whether believers or unbelievers, recognize that these few verses are important for church historically because it shows that the words are some of the oldest in the church. This makes even more sense that it was not originally Paul's when he says, I delivered to you what I also received. This language describes teaching and learning. He was taught this and then proclaimed the same gospel to others. Paul had been converted one to three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. As such, it implies that this is a very, very old teaching. From the beginning of the conception of the church. But what was he given? The gospel itself, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day. The fact that he died, was truly dead, and was buried implies that he was, in fact, in the tomb at one point, but that ultimately he had been resurrected from death, and because of that, the tomb was empty. Next, consider what the text says about who Jesus appeared to. First to Peter, then to the twelve, then 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then to James, then all the apostles, then last of all to Paul. Consider all that information for a second. Jesus, he appeared to a great number of his followers. And Paul is reminding them, if you doubt me, go ask them. Some of them are still alive. Go and ask if they truly experienced a physical Jesus or some ghost, and they will tell you the same, that they experienced a physical Jesus raised from the dead. Likewise, the three named individuals are very important. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was the first head of the church after Pentecost, which is seen in Acts. The second one named is James, the half-brother of Jesus. What do we know about James? Well, we learn in Mark 3 that he thought Jesus was insane. Yet after Peter, it is James who becomes the most important leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's also found in Acts 15. After that, it is Paul, who prior to his conversion was known as the great persecutor of the church, as the text says. What would cause Peter, James, and Paul to change their minds over what had occurred? We can't chalk it up to delusion or what they expected. The truth is, Peter, under normal circumstances, would have found a different Messiah or teacher as most did during the time. For James, there was no reason for him to experience Jesus at all. Paul, meanwhile, was a very devout Jew who thought he was doing God's will by persecuting the church. Only something significant would allow these doubting and even hostile men to change their opinions, and that experience was a truly resurrected Jesus. Finally, the Old Testament prophecies and sacrificial concepts which are fulfilled by Christ When we consider the Passover lamb being sacrificed so death would pass over the people of Judah, the passages and prophets such as Isaiah 53, or the covenantal promises given to David fulfilled in Jesus, when we take all of what we've just talked about together, we have a strong cumulative case for the historical evidence handed down through the Gospels. Thus, we have good reason to believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And now we should have a good understanding of how those who are looking at the resurrection in the early church perceived it. And how they were writing about what happened with this person, Jesus. They experienced both the physical death of Jesus, but also his physical resurrection. They proclaimed this, And now we see we have good reason to have faith in what we too believe. Yet this causes us to reflect on one final bit of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And that is his presence. Even though we may not see him or hear him, his presence is surely with us and we know it through our experience. In this way, we 2,000 years later know Christ is truly risen for we experience him here and now in our lives. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then we would have no experience of Christ. But as it is, we do, and thus Christ must be raised. Indeed, this is the second point for the evidence of the resurrection. If the first point dealt with all the historical which we've gone over, the second deals with this personal experience that we have. For those who believe in Jesus have had an experience with him. He lives in our hearts. He leads us, each of us, by the hand and loves each of us. He has promised to be with us, and each of us who belongs to him knows him personally as they do their own family. We know Jesus has risen because he is with us. This reminds me of a story about Charles Templeton, a contemporary and friend of Billy Graham who ended up leaving the faith. But when he was interviewed by Lee Strobel, he said something very interesting. And I want you to consider this exchange. And how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he'd suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically. Carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus, he was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, But no, he said slowly. He's the most. He stopped. Then he started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept presence, the presence of Christ. It is true, real, and something we experience. So what of this resurrection? We have justification, and when we consider the vast evidence, we certainly have warrant for believing this historical event took place. However, what does it mean? Well, it would mean that God exists. For nothing like this event could occur within the natural order. For no one would be raised from death into immortality apart from the supernatural act of God. If God exists, then it means he has done something in history. But for what purpose? Consider what Jesus says in John 20:17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, this occurs with Mary Magdalene right after the resurrection. We notice Jesus calls them his brothers and calls his father, their father, his God, their God. In this verse alone, we recognize the resurrection has consequences for those who know Christ and who are known by Christ. Those who are brothers of Christ are children of the Father. It is only after the resurrection that this is possible. Consider what Paul says in Romans 4, through 25. The death of Jesus deals with our sins. We are in need of our sins being erased. They are erased by the power of the blood of Christ on the cross. However, it does not end there. With the resurrection, we see that even death has been conquered. Thus, our justification is not in part, but it is complete through the resurrection. Because Christ has overcome the grave, we will as well. Death will not be able to keep us, not because of our own power, but because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As Paul says in Romans 6, 9-11, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And further. In 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-eight through 49 As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. My dear friends, there is a great amount of evidence here, but evidence is not enough, for it still requires faith to believe, even if the evidence is so great. All the evidence does is help with doubts. It silences the skeptics, sure, and gives strength to our faith in Christ. Today, then, we recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those who have faith in Christ, in his life, death, and in his resurrection, and those who have the fruit of faith through repentance from sin, they will not feel the bite of sin and death, but instead will inherit eternal life through the Son of God. For just as he went into death, he was raised. And though we go into death, we too will be raised if we are in Christ Jesus. On this day, know the blessings which come from the resurrection of Christ. Know that through him, we too will have a resurrection from a mortal body into an immortal body. We who die in Christ merely fall asleep for a time, but we will awake into a new life. It is all because of Christ. It is because of what he has done. If we are bound to Christ, then we too will experience the wonder of his resurrection. From Friday through Sunday morning, the disciples had lost hope. They had doubt and darkness deep because they believed it was the end. The darkness, however, passed at the coming radiant light of Jesus Christ. So we too feel the darkness and the experience of the pangs of sin. Yet those who are in Christ have received the same radiant light. And in the end, that radiant light will lead us to eternal life through Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes his grand case for the resurrection. He ends with these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Continue then to be steadfast in the faith, be immovable, and continue in faithfulness to our Lord. So, it goes back to a question, I guess. Are we most to be pitied? I would say no, not at all. Instead of pity, we can experience the exact opposite. We can celebrate we can rejoice, for we know Jesus Christ has been resurrected. Rejoice because the darkness is scattered. Rejoice because we know he has defeated death. Rejoice because we know that his heart beats. Amen. I would like to close today's service with, actually, we're going to do a song. But first, I would like to read from John Chrysostom, who was one of the most beloved preachers around 300 AD. But he wrote this and he said this on Easter. If any man be devout and love God, let him enjoy this fair and radiant triumphal feast. If any man be a wise servant, let him rejoicing enter into the joy of his Lord. If any have labored long in fasting, let him now receive his recompense. If any have wrought, From the first hour, let him today receive his just reward. If any have come at the third hour, let him with thankfulness keep the feast. If any have arrived at the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings, because he shall in no wise be deprived thereof. If any have delayed until the ninth hour, let him draw near, fearing nothing. And if any have tarried even until the eleventh hour, let him also be not alarmed at his tardiness. For the Lord, who is jealous of his honor, will accept the last, even as the first. He gives rest unto him who comes at the eleventh hour, even as unto him who has wrought from the first hour." And he shows mercy upon the last and cares for the first and to the one he gives and upon the other he bestows gifts. And he both accepts the deeds and welcomes the intention and honors the acts and praises the offering Wherefore, enter you all into the joy of your Lord, and receive your reward, both the first and likewise the second. You rich and poor together, hold high festival. You sober and you heedless, honor the day. Rejoice today, both you who have fasted and you have disregarded the fast. The table is full laden. Feast ye all sumptuously. The calf is fatted. Let no one go hungry away. "'Enjoy ye all the feast of faith. "'Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. "'Let no one bewail his poverty, "'for the universal kingdom has been revealed. "'Let no one weep for his iniquities, "'for pardon has shone forth from the grave. "'Let no one fear death, "'for the Savior's death has set us free. "'He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. "'By descending into hell, he made hell captive. "'He embittered it when it tasted his flesh.'" And Isaiah, for telling this, did cry, Hell, he said, was embittered. And when it encountered thee in the lower regions, it was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being raised from the dead, has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice this Easter day. We rejoice because death is overrun. Because there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God through your son, Jesus Christ. And so Lord, as we reflect on the fact that you rose your son from the grave, we rejoice in the fact that this is true. That your son reigns and that we get to be part of his kingdom. So Lord, as we go out today, let us remember that his heart beats still and that no matter what, his promises are sure. Amen. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn today.